Okay, let's uh, turn it over to Tucker Carlson coming up here. So, let's see. Looking for photos of the smash Porsche and SUV. Hi. Danny from Mississippi, Jesse, the people who work for you must have a great time. I laughed out loud at the responses your guy got when he asked about Pauly P. If you're hiring, let me know. I'll relocate. You don't have to relocate. You can just work remotely. But, um... I'm not sure we're going to have to pay you. Uh, Jim from Connecticut, I retired in March, and I think I'm going to go to Mexico, become a Mexican citizen, and then cross the border into America and get everything for free. <laughs> Is that a good retirement decision? Absolutely. And maybe Abbott will bust you to Manhattan. Who knows? You could even personally greet me here at the studio. Jesse, this is Jay from Pennsylvania. How much longer are you going to stay in New York City? You should move your show to Nashville. I'm thinking about moving out of New York for tax purposes. So uh, Nashville might sound like a good fit, although Florida sounds a little bit nicer. No offense. Chris, last night Gutfeld accused you of having hair plugs. Is that true? No, but um, the way things are going, I might actually have to look into getting some. Uh, Tucker's up next, and always remember, I'm Waters, and this is my world. Good evening, and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. When a Hungarian financier called George Soros shorted the English pound 30 years ago, back in 1992, the British government fought back. It did everything it could to preserve the value of its national currency. British officials raised interest rates all the way to 15%. The Bank of England then sold $40 billion to foreign currency reserves in a desperate effort to prop up the pound. In the end, of course, it didn't work. The Bank of England collapsed. Total cost to the population of Great Britain? Well, that's hard to measure, but it was at least 3 billion pounds. This at a time when a pound was worth nearly two and a half dollars. It's now at $1.20, which tells you a lot. So the UK got poorer, but not George Soros. His fund made off with a billion dollars in profit, a billion dollars for creating nothing, only destroying things. In the years since, Soros has become richer still, billions and billions of dollars richer. George Soros has become so rich that at this point, Western governments rarely fight back when he interferes in their most basic domestic affairs, the most important domestic affairs. In 2015, for example, Soros decided that Europe had to resettle millions of penniless refugees from Africa and the Middle East. Relatively few Europeans wanted this to happen at all, but George Soros wanted it. So we spent more than half a billion dollars pushing NGOs and European governments to accept what turned out to be a massive wave of human migration. So what happened next? What's the second part of the story? Well, there's a humanitarian crisis. That crisis is still going on. Life in Europe got much worse. Have you been to Paris lately? You should visit. Violent crime, particularly rapes, skyrocketed. And yet European politicians, many of them funded by Soros, refused to acknowledge it. Look away, they said. This isn't happening. You're crazy or a criminal for noticing. So for the past several years, something not so different has been happening in our country. George Soros has decided to destroy the American justice system. 
and he's doing it with prosecutors. By this point, fully one in five Americans, that's more than 70 million people, now live in a jurisdiction overseen by a Soros-backed prosecutor. Soros DAs run cities like New York, Chicago, St. Louis, New Orleans, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, our biggest cities. They also run places like Travis County, Texas, and Hines County, Mississippi, and Loudoun County, Virginia, Chatham County, Georgia. All of them have Soros-backed prosecutors. Soros' influence comes in the form of campaign financing. The money comes from Soros' Open Society Foundations and affiliated political action committees and shell companies. A recent analysis by the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund found that in total, more than 75 Soros-backed prosecutors currently hold office in the United States. To get those people in those jobs, Soros has spent more than $40 billion. Often he is the largest donor in the race. In the race in Philadelphia, for example, 90% of now DA Larry Krasner's financing came from George Soros. Again, what happened next? Drive through Center City, Philadelphia sometime, and you'll see. Soros prosecutors refuse to enforce the law against protected groups. That is their signature quality. That's the heart of their ideology. The result of this has been a lot of posturing, but even more murder victims. A lot of people have died. Last year, Philadelphia recorded its highest homicide total in history. Overall, nationally, according to the FBI, homicides in the United States jumped 30% in 2020. That is the largest single-year increase in murders in American history. All because one billionaire decided that laws American citizens voted for and support were racist. Does that sound like democracy to you? Of course it's not democracy. Democracy is a system in which the will of the majority is recognized and often acted upon. The people rule. What we just described is oligarchy. At best, it's grotesque and has killed a lot of people. You're probably aware of this on some level, and it's frustrating to hear. But until a few hours ago, no one had really done anything about it. But then today, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, a man who, unlike George Soros, has actually been elected by American voters, decided to sack a Soros-backed prosecutor in his state who has been relentlessly politicizing the justice system in Tampa. That man's name is Andrew Warren. For six years, Warren has refused to enforce laws that George Soros doesn't like. Today, that ended. Watch. The prosecutor, state attorney for this judicial circuit, uh, Andrew Warren, has put himself publicly above the law. In June of 2021, he signed a letter saying that he would not enforce any prohibitions on sex change operations for minors. And then most recently, after the Dobbs decision was rendered by the U.S. Supreme Court, he signed a letter saying he would not enforce any laws relating to protecting the right to life in the state of Florida. And mind you, we have had prohibition on third trimester abortions for a long time. When you make yourself above the law, uh, you have violated your duty, uh, you have neglected your duty, and you are displaying a lack of competence uh, to be able to reform those duties. And so today, we are suspending State Attorney Andrew Warren effective immediately. So to be clear, in case you miss civics class, prosecutors don't get to make the laws. Prosecutors enforce the laws. They prosecute people for violating the laws. Legislatures make laws. Your representatives are elected by you to write into law the rules that you support. 
you get to create the parameters of your own society. That's called democracy. But when a prosecutor decides which laws are valid and which laws are not, that is the most basic subversion of democracy. And Andrew Warren has done that for six years. And by the way, the list that Governor DeSantis just read is just partial. Andrew Warren also decided that he would not enforce HB1. That's a law that increased penalties for rioters. Warren refused to prosecute 67 BLM rioters in the summer of 2020. He said there'd been no breach of the peace in Tampa when there most certainly had been. But he decided to ignore it because he agreed with their politics. More recently, Warren declined to prosecute a gang member accused of shooting into a house with children inside after shooting somebody else. Turns out the gang member was oppressed and, of course, also likely a Biden voter. So he got a pass. People who aren't Biden voters have had a much tougher time in Andrew Warren's jurisdiction. Sincere Christians, for example. Andrew Warren considers them criminals. Two years ago, Warren had a Tampa pastor arrested for the crime of holding a church service. And then he bragged about it. Watch. A defiant Florida pastor arrested for openly, blatantly violating a ban on large gatherings continuing to hold Sunday church services. It's not about uh, a virus. It's about the church being a essential service to the community. Pastor Rodney Howard Brown of the River Church in Tampa is accused of ignoring local safe-at-home orders, encouraging hundreds of parishioners to show up. Howard Brown insists he was within his rights. Ignore the garbage news coverage. What you have here is a pastor arrested for holding a church service. This is the criminal Andrew Warren decided to prosecute, not the gang member shooting into a building with kids inside. No, a Christian minister reading the Bible in public. Now, as ABC told you, that pastor insists he's within his rights, but there's no insisting necessary in this case. It is prima facie true. If the First Amendment doesn't protect church services, it doesn't protect anything. Of course, this pastor and all pastors are within their rights to preach. There is no adult debate about that. But Andrew Warren didn't care. He doesn't like pastors like that because pastors like that believe in a power higher than George Soros. So he tried to send that man to jail. Then, in one of the slimiest moments ever caught on videotape, Andrew Warren quoted the Christian Gospels to justify this oppression and abuse. Watch this. It's disgusting. Putting your parishioners at risk in a time of an emergency like this is not only reckless, but it's illegal. But where people are refusing to obey law enforcement in this regard, you risk being arrested and prosecuted. I'd like to note that I think it's unfortunate that the pastor here is hiding behind the First Amendment. One, it's absolutely clear that emergency orders like this are constitutional and valid. Lastly, I'd remind the good pastor of Mark 12:31 which says there's no more important commandment than to love thy neighbor as thyself. Loving your neighbors is protecting them, not jeopardizing their health by exposing them to this deadly virus. It's just disgusting on every level. How dare you, actually? Here you have a law enforcement official telling constituents not to, quote, hide behind the First Amendment by trying to hold church services. That's a right you're born with that cannot be taken away by some Soros-backed prosecutor. Then that same law enforcement official mocks Christians setting the Bible as a justification for suspending religious freedom. So this is not law enforcement. This is authoritarianism, posing as it. And Warren's not the only one. Dozens of DAs have been trained to do this in law school, and George Soros is funding their campaigns. 
This is exactly why the nation of Hungary closed a Soros-funded nonprofit in Budapest a few years ago, because it was poison. And now that poison's here in the United States. When Florida's 15-week ban on abortions was reinstated, to name just one example, Andrew Warren announced he would defy the law, the law passed by voters. His reasoning, he would like his daughter to be able to have abortions. Watch this. We all want abortion to be safe and legal. And now in many parts of the country, in many circumstances, it will be neither. And I know we've been focused a lot on how and where those lines are drawn. 26 weeks or 24 weeks or 15 weeks, but we are missing the fundamental question. It's not where we draw the line, it's who gets to draw the line. I worry about my daughters, about the freedom that's being taken away from them, about the future that we're leaving them. So I'm horrified, I'm upset, I'm disappointed, I'm scared, I'm worried. Not enough abortions. His daughters, he's crying about it. Who gets to draw the line? Well, actually, we have an answer to that because it's in the Constitution. Voters get to draw the line. Legislatures elected by voters get to draw the line. Prosecutors do not get to draw the line. If they don't like the line, they can resign and go do something else. Go sell aluminum siding or insurance door to door. But they're not allowed to make the laws. But Andrew Warren is not ashamed about any of this. What he is ashamed about is where the money came from that got him elected. The support that he has received from George Soros. We think so, Warren told a reporter when he was asked if his campaign had received cash from George Soros. Quote, we understand that he gave money to the state Democratic Party and the state party money went to support different candidates. And I have very little insight into the amount of money he gave who it went to, etc. Oh, but of course, that wasn't true because Warren knew when he said that, that he had been endorsed by one of Soros's many PACs. It was a PAC called the Color of Change PAC. Warren also knew that many of the 67 BLM rioters he let skate back in 2020 in Tampa were affiliated with this same pact. Do you see how this works? Kind of a snake eating its tail. Soros sends money to Andrew Warren, then Andrew Warren refuses to prosecute thugs who are also supported by George Soros. That happened in Tampa, but it's happening all over the country. Ron DeSantis is the man who put an end to it today in the state of Florida. We'll be speaking to him in just a moment. But first, we want to bring you an update from the White House. Now, after the COVID-19 vaccines came out to much fanfare, Tony Fauci told us, and we're quoting, when people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they're not going to get infected. Why are we rereading re this to you? Because history is important. This just happened last year, and everyone's forgotten it. We refuse to forget it because the entire business of America stopped and people's lives were destroyed on the basis of these claims. Here's another. CDC director Rochelle Walensky added that vaccinated people, quote, do not carry the virus and they don't get sick. That's the head of the CDC. And then Joe Biden told us repeatedly, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That was the talking point of the month. All of a sudden, though, the pandemic is starting to look kind of different. The pandemic is starting to look like a pandemic of Joe Biden. He seems to have the most COVID out of 350 million people in this country. Biden is double vaccinated, double boosted, and yet he just tested positive for COVID again for the sixth straight day. Biden first tested positive on July 21st. We're keeping track. Then he tested negative. Then he had what they're calling a rebound. So what is this about? We'd love to know, but no one can talk to the White House doctor about any of this. Why? We don't know. Probably other reasons. But we are able to hear from Joe Biden, who's in isolation. How's he doing? Well, today during a roundtable discussed with business leaders, Joe Biden announced that he is not actually the president, which you already knew. Instead, Biden said, he's the vice president. I've spoken to the chairwoman about the possibility 
of my being able to buy one of those Corvettes that are electric vehicles that, uh, you know, when they come out. Uh, I'm not going to be able to do it because I can't drive a vehicle while I'm vice president. Can't drive a vehicle while he's vice president, which he currently is. Maybe he can't drive a vehicle because the state of Delaware has revoked his license in the interest of public safety. But whatever, turns out the guy who got the most votes for president ever, 847 million, or was it billion votes, more votes than anyone ever, more votes than there are people on planet Earth, doesn't realize that he's still the president. But Joe Biden's comments say are great news for at least one person who lives in the Delaware area, and that, of course, would be Corn Pop. The bad dude of Wilmington. As of today, Corn Pop knows Joe Biden's not driving any throwdowns in his Corvette with a top-down, six-foot chain in hand. He can't. He's the vice president. Well, there's breaking news out of the Taiwan Strait tonight. China has just fired missiles at Taiwan in response to Nancy Pelosi's peacemaking visit to the island. Not surprising, but still interesting. We'll have the latest. Plus, we have video from within the White House showing the real Michelle Obama, who is exactly like the Michelle Obama you imagine. It turns out it's all true. She's what she thought she was. We'll be right back. Whoa, where's my sound? Okay, this Nancy Pelosi story is just amazing because it's so human. And I think if we take the spiritual lessons from this story to heart, that uh, there's a lot that we could learn here. This is a teachable moment. But I'm not a Nancy Pelosi fan because I am on the right. But let's just imagine that Nancy Pelosi had a long, impressive record of public service. Let's imagine that she was a, a beautiful person in her private life, a heroic, you know, fantastic, amazing person in her public life. And then she helped kick off war with China accidentally. So Nancy Pelosi only went to Taiwan to try to burnish her foreign policy credentials. She only went to Taiwan to feel like an important person. Right? She only went to Taiwan for the feels. She only went to Taiwan because she thought she was doing good because she does have a long track record of standing up to China. But in the process of doing something that she thought was a good thing and bolstering her own credentials and trying to do something noteworthy and historic and impressive before she retires, she has helped bring about a major crisis that's not in America's interest right now to be dealing with this. She could be setting off World War III. She has definitely set off a dramatic escalation in tensions with China. And when you do that, right, when you put people under pressure, you dramatically increase the chances that they will say F you. And people can say F you in all sorts of ways uh, you're probably not going to like. Right? The more pressure you put under people, right, the more their thinking and their freedom of choice narrows. The whole world, as you get under more and more pressure, you start feeling like the whole world is crashing down upon you. And this is the situation that Nancy Pelosi has instigated through just trying to get good feelings, just trying to carry on with a long, proud history of you know anti-China activism or pro-democracy activism. And there is such a, a long history of, of this kind of stuff. All right, remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. All right, that occurred in October of 2016. Why do you think the Cuban Missile Crisis, right, 
Why do you think it occurred in October of 2016? Do you think it was just purely accidental that it came about just as we were heading for midterm elections? Accident? No. All right. The reason we had the Cuban Missile Crisis is precisely because we were heading into midterm elections. So... President Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, all right, that heroic American president, he risked nuclear conflagration. He risked world war. He risked you know, a massive destruction of, of the end of life as we know it, all right, for the Democratic Party's political chances in the midterm elections. He wanted to look tough, all right, before the midterm elections, and so he risked world war. And, and this happens again and again and again. George W. Bush started moving towards invading Iraq in 2003 because he remembered his father got 90% approval ratings after going to war with Iraq in 1991. George W. Bush thought that invading Iraq would be a political winner, and it was in the short term. Right? It, it won Republican seats in the 2002 midterm election, so completely against historical precedents, by putting Democrats on the defensive with this war on terror. Right, George W. Bush you know, won a few seats for the Republican parties in the midterms rather than losing seats, as traditionally happens. And then in 2004, he won re-election, right? and in part because he... he you know, did this invasion of Iraq, and he looked like it was tough against terror. And so we we tend to get into all sorts of trouble because people have different incentives compared to what is good for our nation, what what is good for for our group, right? What Nancy Pelosi did by visiting Taiwan, she feels like she had every reason to believe that would be good for Nancy Pelosi. But it was really bad for you. It was really bad for me. It was really bad for America. Right? This kind of ego feeding is not a good thing. George W. Bush, in large part, invaded Iraq and invaded Afghanistan and launched a war on terror because he thought this was a political winner. He experienced the nation coming together after 9-11. And I got to take this. So hang on. Is to our government, everybody's talking about this, ought to really point to the, the pattern that has been established by the Chinese Communist Party over the last several years under Xi Jinping, which is a which is a, a pattern of increasing aggression toward toward Taiwan, increasing aggression re really toward all of its, its neighbors in the South China Sea, uh, on the Himalayan frontier, vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong. So I, I think what's what's been unfortunate about this is maybe there should have been a meeting about this before the visit happened. <laughs> To try to 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 try to integrate really the approach diplomatically and what we're doing inf informationally and from a defense perspective, uh, so that the vis the visit wasn't just one discrete act that that drew a lot of attention and maybe ceded a little bit of the initiative to the Chinese Communist Party. And I think Neil pointed this out in his really excellent column in Bloomberg this week. And if you uh, viewers haven't read it yet, go track it down. Uh, Neil, you pointed out that the, this uh, president's been in the work for months, and yet only at the 11th hour does the Pentagon start actually planning about the possibilities of what might happen if she goes there. Yeah, it was a bit mysterious to me that this visit happened at all. 
Uh, after all, uh, I, I don't wholly buy the idea that that the Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives is not on speaking terms with the President of the United States, who also, I understand, is a Democrat, or anybody in his national security team. Uh, given the situation globally, that is to say the war raging uh, in Ukraine, uh, it didn't seem like the obvious time uh, to precipitate another round of uh, hot rhetoric uh, in the Cold War between China and the United States. And I have to say that from the Chinese vantage point, Pelosi's visit was a bit of a gift, an opportunity uh, to justify that increasingly aggressive approach that they've taken, the, the flyovers of their uh, aircraft. We, we can expect uh, in the near future all kinds of naval action verging uh, according to some accounts, on on a blockade. Uh, and even if it's only a kind of trial run for a blockade, it does seem to me that we or uh, Nancy Pelosi has given the Chinese an opportunity to ramp it up. So mystery number one is, why did this even happen? The timing didn't seem to me to be uh, great. Uh, and of course, uh, the, the second big mystery is why, uh, and this is partly a question for HR, why would uh, the Biden administration want to increase the tension over Taiwan at a time when we don't have a particularly credible game plan for the eventuality of an actual war? To be clear, I don't think a war is going to happen. I think in many ways, the Chinese playbook's obvious. Lots of shows of strength, but they're not serious about getting into a conflict now. But it seems to me that each time you have a crisis like this, you take a step closer to there actually being a war, whether an accidental one or a deliberate one. And I don't understand why the Biden administration, or I should say Nancy Pelosi, is forcing this issue when the U.S. doesn't have a credible game plan for an actual war. HR, this is something that's puzzled me for a while. Uh, if anything, the rhetoric on the U.S. side about Taiwan has become more and more unambiguous in the last couple of years, partly encouraged by Richard Haas's call for an end to strategic ambiguity. And so the Biden administration has actually talked tougher on Taiwan than the Trump administration did. And yet this is happening when we don't have a credible strategy uh, to defend Taiwan compared, say, with the mid-1990s, which was the last time a Speaker of the House of Representatives, Newt Gingrich, went to Taiwan. Why are they doing this? And would you advise... Uh, a different course if you were still national security advisor. Okay, so you know, obviously this is a, a giant colossal mess. I don't believe the Biden administration wanted Nancy Pelosi to go to Taiwan. And she overrode what the Biden administration wanted, what the U.S. military wanted. On the other hand, this trip was planned for months. So it is a a falling down of responsibility on the part of the Biden administration. But it just makes me reflect on, on this larger issue of how you can you can have a, a lifetime of good works and you can just screw things up by one acting out for your ego, right? She wants to build up her legacy. And JFK was willing to risk nuclear conflagration to bolster the Democratic Party's chances at the midterms, George W. Bush in large part invaded Afghanistan, Iraq, and launched a war on terror because he thought it would be good for him and the Republican Party 
politically. And we dropped nuclear bombs on Japan. I have no problem with what we did at the end of World War II. But why did we do that? Because politicians, meaning congressmen and senators, didn't want to hear from the parents of dead Americans asking, why did we spend billions of dollars developing these weapons and then never use them, and now my kids are dead? All right? So you can't escape the political, and, and you just can't escape like the, the human ego wanting to show off right? Wanting to burnish your legacy. I mean, you could have this, this good, righteous life, and then you, you go off to Taiwan, and you can just wreck everything. It, it's such a, a human moment, right? We may be launched into all these unnecessary tensions with Taiwan because Nancy wants to burnish a legacy. It's so funny to hear Republican politicians in Washington call other people snowflakes when they spend almost all of their time complaining about things and then doing nothing. Well, there's nothing we can do. It's bad. We can't do anything. Send us more money, and if we get elected again, then we'll fix it, maybe. Promise. Yeah, no, I guess we won't. We'll just invade Ukraine or something. So it's, it's kind of amazing and a little jarring to see a Republican politician actually do something about something. All of us have known about Soros-backed prosecutors for a long time and the effect they're having on the country, like a lot of people dying. But it wasn't until today that anyone actually acted, and that would be Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who just sacked a Soros-backed prosecutor in Tampa called Andrew Warren. For more than six years, Andrew Warren was refusing to enforce laws that he didn't like. Well, as promised, Governor DeSantis joins us right now to discuss why he did this. Governor, thanks so much for coming on. Um, so this is kind of a big move, it seems like. Why did you do it? Well, Tucker, you documented the destruction that we've seen with these Soros prosecutors around the country, where they basically take it upon themselves to determine which laws should be followed and which laws should not be followed. And I can tell you in Florida's constitution, uh, that constitution vests the veto power in the governor, not an individual district attorney or a state attorney where they can pick and choose. And so I asked my staff to review all state attorneys in the state of Florida. Okay, I don't want to hear from politicians. I find them boring. So let's go to a deep thinker, Millennial Woes. wonder what he has to okay, say. Okay, so I'll return to Inward. What are your thoughts on the devolution of Richard Spencer and his approval of Drag Queen Story Hour just to be a contrarian to the right wing? Well, I think he's just being a contrarian to the right wing. From, from what I understand, the extent of this is that he liked a tweet by someone else saying, what actually is the problem with a child seeing a drag queen? something equivalent to that. And I think he also liked a tweet from one of his acolytes saying that there's a lot of right-wing uh, outrage about transgenderism and it's performative. It's like they're doing, the right-wingers are getting outraged as a fake performance. Um, I mean, this is just wankery and uh, you know, fiddling while Rome burns. Uh, it's not of any use to anyone. It's an act of distraction. It, it's dishonest. Um, and if he's doing this so as to curry favour with the mainstream, that is an absolutely futile effort. He will never be accepted by the mainstream, I don't think. I can't think why they would do that, and I can't see them getting away with doing that. I mean, their own viewers would condemn them. Uh, well, so whatever. I mean, I'm trying to think. Is it actually possible that it could, like, could he be a regular, because he was on CNN once, could that be a regular thing? Could, could things become so weird that he could actually be accepted by the mainstream? But I don't think so, because they've got no reason to do that. They've just got no reason to do it. So... So I can't see that. So if he is trying to do that, I don't think it's going to work. Um, so I think he's counter-signaling about the drag queen issue simply to get attention and to annoy people, and annoy people whom he resents, which is the, the alt-right, the remnants of the alt-right. 
I mean, I just think it's silly. I think it's all silly. Yeah, yeah there's nothing. I can't really say anything about that. I think it's it's attention seeking ultimately. Okay, the final question from Ainward. The back and forth discussions with yourself, Pox Populi, and Padfa about cultural stagnation have been very interesting. What do you think the solutions to this are, and how would you imagine the future being if this were not the case? Gosh, I've no idea. I'm sorry that that's such a complex matter. That there's there's so much to it. I mean, you've got to think about the internet and how that. Uh, what's the word? There's a word for this. Like it, it, it turns culture into a kaleidoscope. There, there's no center. There, on the one hand, there's no mainstream culture anymore, and there are no subcultures anymore. Well, and, and then everything is a subculture. But at the same time, everything, all of these subcultures, are the mainstream now. So we've lost that tension. Well, that tension that used to exist between the mainstream and uh, the alternatives. That, that's, that no longer applies. And so what we have is this awful sort of stasis where everything is part of the mainstream. And the, the thing that epitomizes this for me is uh, the website Fest Ticket, where whatever the show, whatever the concert, you can buy a ticket for it on festticket.com. So nothing is outside that, which means that everything is inside and under its control, under its purview. It can say which band is going to have tickets sold and which band is going to be banned from getting tickets sold. So there's all that tremendous amount of control there. But then the internet, the other aspect is the internet just demolishing this whole idea of of the mainstream and the alternative. But then also the music charts, I mean, that's just not a thing as it used to be. Hollywood is just not a thing in the way it used to be. I've talked about that before. So the apparatus for cultural production and distribution that used to be there and result in a sort of hierarchical thing that was constantly evolving, constantly moving, that's gone. And so what you have instead is this endless stasis which buzzes with meaningless activity, where it's like, okay, it's a new novel pop song out this week, but it's exactly the same as the novel pop song that came out last week and last January and last August. It doesn't matter. And then the thing with uh, different directors, all, it all seems generic now. That there is Even like if you look at someone like Ridley Scott, um, all of his films are just generic. There, there isn't, it doesn't feel like a Ridley Scott film anymore. Uh, I, I remember when I watched Hannibal, and I, at the end of it, I, I thought, what, what was that? There was a sense of that nothing had happened. Um, and again, you see this with so many films, so many directors, that you leave it just thinking, what was the, what just happened? It, it, nothing. There was nothing. Uh, so I, don't, I mean, this is a big problem, but a very complex thing. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Millennial Woes. I see Duvid's in the chat. I'll, I'll send him an invite. And uh, let's see what the hell is going on here with with Tucker Carlson. Barack Obama, she complains that writers are talking about. The obvious choice would be Michelle Obama. Obviously, polls show Democrats love her. The media loves her more than anything. She went to Princeton on merit. She's a fashion icon. She's married to Barack Obama. She complains in her own vegetable garden. Therefore, she's totally qualified. And we assumed this was going to happen until we saw a new Showtime series that portrays Michelle Obama as first lady. And it turns out that Michelle Obama is exactly the person you thought she was. Here she is. You don't think I want to pop off every time I see another unarmed black kid get shot? You know I want to be out there on those streets marching right along with those kids. But that's not our reality. Because we're the first family. Yeah. But Barack, we're the first black family and we've been called in every way possible for once let's be the all right so first of all she's using the n-word 
or the actress portraying her is using the N-word. So, like, that's, you're, you're done. You can't hold higher office, even if an actor is using your image to use that word. You're set. You can't be president. Okay, let's, uh, let's say hello to Duvid. Duvid, you got your power back? No, unfortunately not. Oh, no. Wow. I'm supposed to get a few hours. Wow. I'll, I'll probably back tonight. And uh, how's life without power? Um, I managed. Yeah, I, I took uh, my stuff in my fridge and freezer. My parents have a freezer in their garage, so I just stuck it in their freezer. Um, you know, my eBay business, I printed uh, my uh, slips out from my parents' house. So I mean, it's annoying not having a... Uh, you know, air conditioning and power, but, uh, you know, I, I could, I manage, you know. Okay. Let's, uh, let's go through some more of, uh, this book by Ronnie Goldman and, uh, talk about, uh, uh, conservative oppression. Like, uh, normally I, I have a really negative reaction to victimology, right? So, you know, these days it seems like, you know, everyone wants to claim, uh, victimhood, do you have any reaction to this whole area of victimology where so many people really buy into being victims? Yeah, I'm not sure, you know, how much he's making his case for, you know, how much do conservatives think that we're victims? How much is reality? And, uh, you know, just like watching Tucker and I was thinking the, the point I made yesterday about differentiating between politics and culture and uh, you know, Ronnie kind of seems like frame games and like the Frankfurt School and he's focusing on power structures. It's like like politics focuses on polit- on power structures. You know, you win elections and you get into power and then you could change things like, uh, you know, Tucker was talking about George Soros and uh, investing in district attorneys and then they change things versus culture, which focuses on a, a, you know, a different level. So if you're a conservative in a blue area or just uh, culture has changed and now what used to be the norm, like you were asking questions about if I had a gay neighbor or something like that, where um, you know, the power structures have shifted, the general culture has shifted. Uh, but am I being oppressed as a conservative or is just my ability to influence other or the fact that things around me aren't the way I want that has changed? And, uh, you know, if he's focused on university and speech and media or in the political battle where, where the, you know, the, the goalpost or the battle lines have shifted in the political field. So w- where have you felt most oppression in your life as a Jew, as a man, as a white man? You really very rarely, like in university. You you definitely like okay I've been passed by, uh, you know like I was mentioning the downtown synagogue, uh, you know, where they went a different direction, um, you know they basically never listened to anything I said, uh, but but they didn't really oppress me, they just uh, went their own direction, put their own people into power, uh, you know looked past me, uh, you know never gave me a hookup, like in university, um, yeah I made comments, you know they kind of maybe people shoot me down. 
and every time I open my mouth, you know, make, make me feel like why to even open my mouth. Uh, and even, you know, walking around as an Orthodox Jew, a lot of people avoid me, um, don't want to associate with me. Uh, but I'm not sure, you know, like, God forbid I was arrested, but both of those times were more, you know, something I did, you know, I had direct conflict with, uh, with uh, somebody. And even if I, you know, was kind of wronged in a certain way, it was largely the result of my own actions. So I'm not sure I've ever been oppressed. And I've always said that, like, uh, that's why I'm kind of disagreeing with Ronnie. And I say that to, uh, you know, blacks and Jews like Charles Moskowitz is like, you don't get to cry racism or anti-Semitism if you're a Republican. Like, uh, you know, like I'm a right-wing Jew. I don't complain about anti-Semitism. And that's what Brundlefly said that turned him to the alt-right, where he was like, oh, here's all these black conservatives, and they're still complaining about racism. You're a conservative. You don't get to complain about racism. And I don't know if you remember that, you know, Brundle and his uh, um, your radicalization story, but I've generally taken that attitude and agree with you. Uh, I don't think I've really ever been oppressed. Mm. And uh, did you mention to me, did you go on Charles Moskowitz today? I called in, you know, because he's on Zoom and has a call-in number. So uh, we talked about the midterm elections. And, you know, I was mentioning to you in the Twitter DM, he, he's kind of like straight MAGA 2020 promoting Republican candidates. And, you know, politics versus culture where he would have a practical view on the matter is if you want to win, you have to go about it through the electoral process and you have to promote candidates and get them to win. And, you know, so he's all in on uh, Trump MAGA 2022 and, uh, you know, talking about candidates and trying to influence elections and book guests that are active in elections as a, uh, you know, you're probably more focused on culture than politics, and he's more on politics than culture. So I'm just. This is an interesting question off off the top of off the top of my head. I want to like put a number on how important Orthodox Judaism is to me on a, on a one to ten. So if it was a ten, it means that it just dominates over every other part of my life. So I'd say that Orthodox Judaism for me is something like a seven. On, on a one to ten, uh, how about for you? Is Orthodox Judaism like a five, a seven, a nine, a ten out of ten? Where would you rank it as far as importance in your life? I would probably agree. I remember a prominent, uh, you know, rich Orthodox Jew and in, involved. He was you know head of the federation, and he spoke at the local Young Israel, and he mentioned. Uh, violating Sabbath to, uh, you know, God forbid, see his dying mother in the hospital and like in a halakhic way, uh, it probably wasn't warranted. You know, it was more sentimental. It wasn't like a, a difference of sickness, but it was just, he wanted to spend more time. And, uh, and I think the reaction in the synagogue, a lot of people was like, no, nah, no, nah, like, uh, you know, like, you know, that's not the halakha. Uh, and, uh, but I put it pretty high up on my manner. Like, uh, you know, like, I don't break kosher, although I'm weak on kosher. Like, I, you know, I, I go to vegetarian places and, uh, you know, with little ingredients. Uh, but, uh, you know, even Sabbath, uh, you know, little, like in my own way, I always celebrate Sabbath. I always say the prayers 
I, uh, you know, put them to fill in every day. Um, and, uh, but in, in the same time, like I will go against Orthodox standards in the way that if you asked a generic Orthodox rabbi, I know that they would all say like, no, that's not the law. You can't do it. You like Hinduism or something like that. You like, no, uh, you know, I might have a few rabbis say, okay, you're doing something important. And in your case, we're going to allow it. Uh, but, uh, you know, generally it goes against what almost all Orthodox rabbis, uh, you would say, and I do it anyway. So I, I would agree. I put it like a seven. Right. Because if you're a nine out of 10, you run by your rub, you know, everything that possibly questionable in your life, you, you run it by your rub. You don't, you know, give independent opinions on YouTube without running it by your rub. And I do not do that. And I can't see myself doing that. So that's why I don't put, put it a nine out of 10. Uh, so do you share that sentiment? Yeah, I mean, it's it's my fundamental identity. I wear a yarmulke, even though when I do Hindu things, I wear a yarmulke. It's known like I'm an Orthodox Jew who's doing this, even though, you know, it's contradiction to, you know, majority understanding of Orthodoxy. Um, I've never caved in on my Orthodoxy in terms of like, come on, like do this, uh, uh, you know, but there are certain value or things that I've judged that uh, you know, I'm going to do. I'm going to do, even though I know that uh, it's not the halakha. It's not right. What, you'd never uh, get an Orthodox um, rabbi to sign off, or it'd be challenging, right? So yeah, yeah but I mean, it's my essential identity, mm-hmm. and that permeates every single decision I make. Mm-hmm. And so for for me, twelve step programs are 10 out of 10 in importance because without them I'm not emotionally sober and as long as I'm not emotionally sober I can just go off the rails in so many self-destructive and anti-social directions so for me my my sobriety my emotional sobriety I've never done drugs or, or alcohol but my emotional sobriety comes first so to overcome my my tendencies towards love addiction, sex addiction, porn addiction, uh, debting, under-earning, all sorts of dysfunctional emotional compulsions that uh, have inhibited my life. I have to make 12-step programs my my 10 out of 10. I I make my emotional sobriety 10 out of 10. Uh, Is there anything that you make a 10 out of 10 in importance? Maybe universal humanism. you know, like I was talking with a, a friend on Facebook that I went to Orsamaic who uh, you know, had been Orthodox and then went back to uh, pretty secular. And, you know, we were joking that I could have been a really good modern Orthodox or Orthodox Jew. I just couldn't bring myself to hate Arabs. And uh, even though I'm not like part of, of a, you know, like my parents aren't, aren't even really universal humanist, maybe in a certain extent, like I went to that, uh, you know, special Frankfurt school that was universal humanist, but I'm not officially connected, but I've said I've generally kept with universal humanism. And if there's a direct conflict with Judaism and universal humanism, usually I go with universal humanism, although it's probably not a 10. Like, I don't think that uh, I always go with universal humanism. So in that sense, I don't think I have a 10, um, although it's possible universal humanism or certain uh, intellectual ideals um, outrank my uh, belief in Judaism. Uh, there's definitely no other group 
identification. Like even as a Hindu, like I like Hindu theology. I could I self identify as a Hindu. I might put Hinduism as a five, uh, but uh, you know, even the group identity, like I have a temple and people I'm loyal to, uh, but you know, not in the same way. Like I've dedicated my life. I, I would put Judaism maybe as a nine or ten, uh, but Orthodox Judaism as a seven, because I've uh, I've declined in my Orthodox Judaism, but not in my commitment to uh, Judaism. Like I think I think a uh, you know modern Orthodox rabbi. I look in the mirror and I see a Jew. Uh, when I interact with people, my essential identity, I see a Jew, even though I feel a little bit alienated from the community. Uh, like that's my essential identity. I'd put it, uh, you know, at least a nine, and I'm not sure I have a ten. And uh, what would you put your non-Jewish side? So I also have a a non-Jewish side. Obviously, I I don't have, to the best of my knowledge, any well, Jewish. Well, my power and, just wait, came hang on, on, hang on. Let me answer the question, and then we'll go to you. So, to the best of my knowledge, I don't have any Jewish ancestors. I converted to Judaism, so genetically, I'm not Jewish. I my life experience up until my 20s was not Jewish. I grew up in, in Seventh-day Adventist church. Almost all my friends in my first 21 years of life were Protestant. So I still quite like my Anglo upbringing. I still have many friends who are Anglo. So I would say that the the Anglo side of me is something like a a four out of five in importance uh, out of 10. So I'd put my Orthodox Judaism as a seven. I'd put my 12-step commitment as a 10 out of 10. I'd put my Anglo side, maybe a, a four or a five out of 10. What what importance would you accord to the non-Jewish part of you? Well, I definitely put extremely high value on honoring my father. Like I basically always do what my father tells me except in terms of life advice, like, you know, like, uh, uh, I haven't taken his life advice, but like, you know, saying if my dad asked me to do something on a personal level, like to, you know, uh, help him out or something, or, uh, you know, I always say, yes, I always do it. Um, you know, I, rare, I, I occasionally get in arguments with my father, but very rarely, you know, I, I take honoring my father very seriously, but on an identity level, I'm, pretty disconnected you know because i'm probably i'm a tiny bit cherokee indian you know maybe a few percent and the rest uh you know scottish irish you know in fact i went to my father's town in uh you know missouri they had a little family reunion um and uh but i don't have much of a identity you know like and, and i think my father is pretty confused about his identity like that and, uh, but, uh, you know, I put it in the universal humanism, you know, maybe like the alt-right kind of looking at, uh, you know, where I come from, uh, the family history, America, uh, rural America, uh, the changes in society, but I'm disconnected to it. Uh, you know, I grew up in the multicultural place among mostly African-Americans and also within Judaism, like honoring, my, honoring my father, uh, is integral to being a Jew. So like, okay, I honor my father because I'm a Jew and it's a requirement of being a Jew, not necessarily because I'm connected to uh, my non-Jewish uh, identity okay. like that. Okay. So and I don't even know what my non-Jewish identity really even means. Like, yeah, I try to look into it, 
like I looked into like Scottish Freemasonry or you know what what I don't even know what it means. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to understand my non-Jewish identity. Well, but you must have a sense of like fifty percent of your genetics is not Jewish, so you must have a sense sometimes that you're reacting to events or that you're experiencing the world differently from most of the Jews you know who come from a. Uh, you know, uh, from two Jewish parents, don't don't you have any sense of the of being in touch or noticing the the non-Jewish genetic strata of yourself? Definitely, like in terms of my identity, uh, I feel that that's a powerful part about my identity, and it's like a biasing factor. But I don't really feel like I'm associated to uh, you. Know, just that makes up who I am, and to a large extent, I changed who I am but it still shapes the way I, I view the world. But I'm not really part of this greater non-Jewish identity in, in a way like uh, affiliation, but more it's uh, something that shaped my identity and how I view the world. But, uh, you know, I'm not really part of a larger non-Jewish world or connected to my larger non-Jewish family. So let's talk about uh, American identity. So probably... For me, the the dividing line was same-sex marriage. Once they made same-sex marriage the rule of the the land, that severely diminished my American identity. I I just found it abhorrent. And so that was a dividing line for me. So prior to that ruling, I would have put my American identity as probably an 8 out of 10. And now I'd probably put my American identity as being, say, a a six or a seven out of 10 in importance. So maybe let's just say eight, move from an eight to a seven, equal with my Orthodox Jewish identity. On a a one to 10 scale, how important is your American identity to you? Probably just like a five. And as I said, like I went to public schools that were already majority African-American. And uh, my grandfather was a World War II veteran, both of them. Even uh, you know minor war heroes, not really war heroes, but they were honored and received uh, you know minor honors. Um, and I knew that, but it wasn't a large part of my identity. My parents were lawyers, and then I went to uh, you know this Frankfurt you know critical theory private school, and so I never had. I, I always looked at uh, you know American pride as a negative thing. You know I had conservative leanings uh, and more in Judaism to like, I want to be a good citizen, good to my community. Uh, but, uh, and I, you know, God forbid I've had trouble with power structures, you know, like as a kid and, and through being adult, like things were kind of rigged against me. Like, uh, you know, like I'd get beat up and then I'd be the one who gets in trouble or I'd feel like, uh, you know, the, the system's kind of against me. So, uh, I never had strong, uh, American identity, like that, and I've always had the premonition that America's kind of on our last legs, and even you know, like conspiratorial, like uh, America's kind of doing bad things, and I don't want to be uh, too caught up and too caught up with it. Um, you know, my father, you know, God forbid, we're you know, like talking about our grandfather and like you know, serving World War II was a huge part of his identity. Is he a hero? Do I look at my grandfather as a hero? even though he fought the Nazis and uh, it's tough to know. I'm not even sure, you know, I look at my, my grandparents, uh, grandfather's a hero for fighting the Nazis. And, and it's really tough to, uh, 
understand that. And as I said, I grew up in a different generation where American pride, you know, certainly in the blue area was not uh, not instilled in, uh, you know, the schools. Let's talk about individual fulfillment and our individual identity. So for me, it's something probably like an eight or a nine out of 10. That's how important I put you know, fulfilling those things that uh, are important to me, and that often changes day day by day. So personal fulfillment, I would say, is probably an 8 or a 9 out of 10 in importance for me. How about for you? Yeah, I agree. It's very high up there. Like, I try to fulfill my duty to society and consider, like, you know, values that my father taught me that might be within Judaism, but they're things my father and his side of the family, like, you know, a man keeps his word, I think, you know, like uh, an old story of my family going back generations was, you know, grandfather, great, great grandfather said, like, all I'm leaving you is a good name. <laughs> like, he, he didn't, have, you know, he didn't have any possessions. He left his kid a good name. So, like, in that sense, that that's important to me. But uh, I'm more a loner and I'm, I'm more focused on my research and my ideas. And, uh, you know, like, I always carry books and read my books. And so I, I like to think I'm a loyal, good worker. If I give my word, I'll keep it. But uh, I'm more interested in pursuing uh, my pursuits that are mostly intellectual. And uh, as far as geography, I, I would say that my Los Angeles slash Californian identity is probably a five out of 10 in importance to me. How important is your Michigan identity? Yeah, I mean, it's probably only like a five. I don't feel attachment to it. You know, like I try to be loyal to my connections, you know, my parents, you know, even my dad, if he came from a small town, um, you know, it's where his dad became an engineer, was in, you know, Metro Chicago, and then retired to the town he came from. My dad doesn't plan on doing that. Um, you know, so I, I, I probably just kind of stay in Detroit. I'm not looking to move, but not because I have a special attachment, but, uh, yeah, I just have something to base it off. You know, I have a house, I have my parents, I have uh, people that know me, and it'd be too much of an effort to uh, try doing it someplace else, but not because I have some special attachment. And thinking about family, I'd say my family is like a 7 out of 10 in importance to me. How about for you? I put it pretty high up, maybe even like an 8, uh, you know, especially over the last few years that I started working for my parents maybe even like a nine that, uh, you know, like I kind of resigned from a lot of my other connections and decided, okay, I just work for my parents, help uh, my dad build up his business and, and his estate. And, uh, you know, so I, I maybe even put that up as a nine for me, although that's changed for most of my life. It was small. Like I went to Israel and New York. I was almost willing to, uh, detach myself from my family and maybe it was even just like a three or four uh, but the last few years maybe it's increased to like a nine and we probably already touched on this but i'll just say it in different words for, for me the life of the mind is like a nine out of ten or a ten out of ten and i think it's similar similar for you yeah i, I live basically with thoughts in my mind you know i said like i could deal with people and keep my word and keep relationships and try to keep on good terms and be a good worker. Uh, but my life is basically, you know, my thoughts in my head. That's what keeps me going day to day. I wake up in the morning, uh, you know, wanting to continue thinking about 
what I was thinking about. And, and even like talking with you, you know, like here I am talking to a person across the country, largely because it's the ideas and I can't find anyone around me who likes talking about this stuff. So I'm talking to, you know, Church of Entropy and, and you and Charles and, the, and these various people because, uh, you know, I'm seeking companionship on a, um, an intellectual level that I can't find locally. And then for me, live streaming, I think, would probably be like a 7 out of 10 in importance. How about for you? You're probably only like a 5. Um, you know, I said it's more the intellectual companionship that uh, to find people to talk about ideas that I can't find locally. As you can see on my channel, I only put out a few videos, and it's more to kind of keep it going, to have like a home base. Uh, but I'm not attached to, uh, you know, putting on the live and, and having people show up. Uh, for me, it's more about the ideas than, uh, you know, the community. So, you know, no offense. It's not about you. It's more about uh, the ideas that we're mutually interested in. And if, uh, you know, we were no longer interested in the same mutual ideas, uh, we would probably drift apart. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And then friends, I'd say for me, friends are probably an 8 out of 10 in importance. How about you? Um, I hardly have any friends. You know, probably it's decreased to like a four. It'd be more important. It's just very difficult to make friends. I have, I've made a few friends, um, you know, that I, I, I'm a pretty loyal person generally. Um, I haven't really sought out making friends in New York. I, I you know, like I had friends, but yeah, for me, it's lower, like a five. Also, I'm, I'm kind of a loner. Um, but I like companionship. Like I like, uh, you know, I always have a handful of friends and I tend to be, uh, pretty loyal. And, uh, politics, I, I want to separate it into two categories. As far as it's, it's literal importance for my life, it's like a one out of 10, but as far as a hobby goes for me, it's a seven out of 10. So how about for you? Yeah, I mean, it's like a, three i guess like I, I i do it out of duty and as a hobby it's more you know conversation starter so you know like church of entropy we we don't even really talk about politics so it's kind of like sports uh my, my parents are very political i talk with my mother uh you know probably half of what we talk about is politics but that's because that's kind of what she likes to talk about um you know, if I had to put like sports as like a one or two, um, you know, politics would be a three or four. And, you know, so it's just more uh, utility because that's, uh, you know, like like small talk or whatever. That's uh, what you have to do to, uh, you know, converse. And, you know, like I said, like a duty bound person that uh, it, it's kind of like a duty. But uh, I don't know if it, why you put it seven like a hobby you consider it fun or is yes. it more like I'm it's saying a, it's utility. a fun, fun intellectual challenge? It's it's a it's a productive hobby for me. I mean, is it is it like because you haven't found the people to speak about what you want to speak about with, and if you found that you wouldn't talk about politics, or or that you say that no, you would I talk about politics. politics, I love politics. I enjoy following politics. Politics and power intrigue me. How how the world works, how the world works in politics fascinates me. It has nothing to do with any particular individual. It's Sociology, the how idea. the world works, interests me. But then, you know, I'll take like 
a theoretical like uh, consciousness, power structures, the human mind, human nature, and politics. So if I could talk about, if I find people that like to the more meta level of human nature uh, than the politics itself for me, but you know, like your politics is probably the majority thing I talk about with you're probably half of my conversation center around uh, your politics. And that's kind of like a happy medium in terms of uh, your, my identity and trying to be a good citizen or, or just have uh, you know, an icebreaker for conversation. Yeah. And uh, so how far did you get into this book by Ronnie Goodman? Well, when I was interrupting, I was telling my power just went back on. Um, so I finished the whole first part and, uh, you know, like 170 pages plus the preface that's broken into three parts. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, I, I have a different uh, structural analysis. I, I think he has, you know, maybe like a prototypical uh, Jewish conservative or uh you know, maybe like, you know, Charles Moskowitz frame games where he's applying kind of a critical theory and focusing too much on politics as opposed to culture. Cause I think conservatism is more about culture than politics and politics is more strategy. So, you know, when you're involved in politics, you need strategy and tactics because politics is about winning as opposed to culture. Culture is not about, uh, winning and then you'd have the greater questions that he might uh, be trying to diminish about uh, your demographic change and uh, the greater uh, group identity by focusing on politics as opposed to culture. Hmm. And uh, what other books are you reading these days? I, I really pounding away on, uh, you know, because I've been writing these essays and, uh, I, you know, like Jennifer encouraged me, I want to write a book on the multiple truth hypothesis. And uh, so I want to focus on the self and identity. And uh, there's a lot there, especially I was mentioning to you the other day about narrative identity, a more uh, your recent theory of the last uh, 50 years. Um, I, I just finished uh, today the Oxford handbook of uh identity theories uh, and uh you know another book complicated like compendiums of uh psychological theories and then some other books um on the topic and uh i want to move into what's called the science of expertise and it's interesting that uh i think expertise is considered a subfield of identity and i was thinking like that as a chess player where okay, I'm good at chess because I spend a lot of time on it and, uh, and, and it's a central part of my identity. And then, and, you know, so what you're good at, um, you know, there's intelligence like IQ and general intelligence, but expertise is different than intelligence that uh, if you're more intelligent, you might have a quicker time garnering expertise, but expertise doesn't come from intelligence. It comes from your know, work and uh, training and then it becomes a central part of a person's identity. So uh, I, I've been reading a lot of literature on uh, the topic. I'm still pounding through books on uh, 
you know, Judaism, science, biology. Uh, you know, I read probably an average of a book a day. And uh, how important is chess to you on a one to ten? It's diminished. Um, you know, probably like a five. It's it's something that I'm good at, and it's a important part of my identity because it gives me self esteem to be accomplished and good at. And uh, you know, from COVID nineteen, I could be a chess coach. I could be, you know, at the Detroit Institute of Arts and, uh, you know, I, I could be given respect uh, because I have accomplishments in the field. Uh, but honestly, I don't really like chess. Um, if someone asked me to play, like, I don't really want to play. I play on the Internet. Um, I'm actually, you know, my blog, I have a lot of views on, you know, I, I have the best reception on the chess server uh, for my blog. I'm captain of uh, Israeli chess team. That's now got uh, uh, a few co-captains, but over 100, I think 170 members now. Um, But I don't really enjoy the game anymore. I lost enjoyment, and it's more, uh, you'll probably, uh, you'll keep my mind sharp. And when I have downtime, just to keep my mind focusing and, and active. And like I was saying, expertise is part of my identity. So it gives me something like, you know, I'm doofing, I'm good at chess. And then I have to work at it to uh, keep my status there and, you know, for my self-esteem and for my, you know, public position, you know, COVID will end and I'll go back to coaching or I coach online. Um, You know, I have uh, um, my blog. No one's really reading my blog. And I put it on the chess server and uh, all of my articles got a few hits. I even got a few thousand hits on uh, two of my articles and it's in relation to uh you know, like take me seriously because i'm really good at chess as opposed to just take me seriously because you know i'm another guy like you know ronnie or something that wants to get my ideas out there uh but you know to pivot it to it to it's something like i'm really smart and i've proven that by you know my results at chess uh but like i said like i don't even really like the game anymore and how have you kept your phone powered with the power off um, well, the power just came back on. I have a, a power box like, uh, that has about six hours. So I was able to have a light and enough to, uh, charge my battery, um, like a, a electric generator that I plug in. And so when the power went out, um, you know, I had, uh, enough power to charge my phone. Really, I got it for my sump pump. But it's been so dry here, even though there was rain, that my sump pump, uh, you know, wasn't full. But, uh, you know, I got this uh, electric generator in case my power went out so my basement wouldn't flood and I'd be able to drain the sump, sump pump. But it was able to, uh, you know, nightlight and to power my phone a few times. So there's a, an author, Joseph Epstein, who's got an essay in commentary on grief. And he quotes an academic on practical identity. Practical identity is a description under which you value yourself. It's a description under which you find your life to be worth living and your actions to be worth undertaking. Do you have any thoughts on practical identity? You know, there's older theories that there's questions of, uh, you know, like John Locke says, the main point of identity is providing continuity to a person. And that it's kind of false that there really is no essential identity. There is nothing essential that that makes the person the same. 
and it's just kind of like uh, like David Hume and the bundle theory. Um, so there's many theories that identity. There's the big five that you talk about in personality traits that there's these certain enduring characteristics. Uh, and then there's other theories that are more practical that basically people do what works. And if what's working doesn't work anymore, people will do something, uh, something else. And the, you know, like, because it's a theory of mind, it's difficult to test. Uh, but generally most people, most theories hold that, that you know, like Erickson, that there's a period of identity formation from a teenager going to an adult where most of those are enduring and uh, that it might be practical that a person like role-based identity or a social, what they call psychosocial uh, phenomenon that, that uh, it's a feedback mechanism between my own introspection and the reaction from society. So if what I'm doing doesn't work, I'm going to have to adapt what I'm doing or the role that I need to get into to be successful in society uh, that I will adapt my identity to the roles that I play like Judaism or something, or the major things that are the roles that I play in uh, society. So I'm, I'm, I would be kind of neutral. Uh, I think there are enduring characteristics uh, and practicality. It's very difficult to uh, change a person's personality to be practical and you mean you are probably both very stubborn in many ways where we've made our life worse by not being practical like this is who i am i'm going to keep on being who i am even if it doesn't work you know like i refuse to reinvent myself just because it works okay yeah david great to talk to you do you have any final words for this evening uh yeah sure thank you i finally got my uh power back i'm not sure if you wanted you thought the Irani yeah, book was yeah. worthy of a you know going into, so even tomorrow Sabbath starts late. If you wanted to, uh, you know, uh, yeah. you go through yeah. it and uh, you know discuss uh, chapter by chapter, read quotes yes. from that. Yeah. It was pretty interesting, even though uh, you know, I have some uh, alcohol criticisms with it, but you know it's a very well written and uh, thought provoking book. Okay, David, I'll talk to you later, man. Thanks a lot. Take care, man. Bye-bye. All right, back to Tucker on uh, Michelle Obama. But there's also the problem that the Michelle Obama portrayed there is completely unhinged. And again, this was produced by Showtime. These are not her enemies. These are her friends. Here's Michelle Obama saying she wants to beat up Trump supporters. A black man can rise to the highest office in the land built on the backs of slaves, and it tears them up so much that they elect something like that. Yo, Mich- I want to beat the shit out of every single person who voted for him. I want to go so f-ing low. <laughs> you gotta wonder, did they did they call the Obamas? I mean, this is like the the right wing caricature of Michelle Obama. Presumably, Showtime, the people who wrote this, know Michelle Obama, and that's what she's really like. Who knows how this got made? Are the Obamas mad about it? They should be. Viewers don't like it. Showtime just announced the first. Lady, this show will be canceled after just one season. Woo! Not flattering. Well, we, in just a moment, are going to give you a respite from the insanity. Final exam on tap. Emily? Okay, we'll take a break from Tucker. And... (laughs) 
Oh, I, I, I can't, uh, I, I can't avoid this story. I, I think it's it's time that we we tackle this. <laughs> so this is an essay in in the Guardian, right? So uh, Steve Saylor saw it, and uh, he makes the point. He's the author. It's uh, academic Stephen W. Thrasher. He's a PhD. He's the author of A Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. And you'll be shocked to learn that he is also a gay man, and he's a professor at Northwestern University. And he's, he's made this stunning insight. Right? Many people, guys, many people, even queer people, have internalized the idea that contracting sexually transmitted infections is bad. I, I mean, why? Why do we have to be so regressive that we think contracting sexually transmitted diseases is bad? Right? We're, we're now decades after the AIDS pandemic. All right, We got game-changing drugs to restore some peace of mind. Now monkeypox puts that progress at risk. So the author says, last week I went to my doctor's office for a long-scheduled sexually transmitted infection checkup, and I started to cry a few minutes into my appointment. Like many gay men, I am on a daily drug called pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, right? which prevents me from becoming infected by HIV, even if I were to have sex without a condom or use injection drugs. At 44 years of old, I am of the generation who knew about AIDS before we even knew about sex. From childhood, I conflated sexuality and fear. PrEP was a game changer in taking that fear away. But last week, HIV was not much on my mind. And almost as soon as the physician's assistant closed the doors, I burst into tears. Man, I'm concerned that this, that this article is going to propagate negative tropes about gay men. I was terrified that some skin bumps could be monkeypox. Because he was so nice, I blabbered on that I would never tell anyone else to feel bad if they contracted any infection. My book was coming out the following week, and it was about viruses. What if I had to cancel my book launch because I had contracted a virus? He kindly but firmly told me not to feel bad about feeling bad. We're all on the edge, he said. Him, me, every gay man we both knew. It's been a lot for all of us. And I realized how angry I was that for the third time in my life, a viral pandemic was dictating my sex life, shaping my professional life, messing with my head, and keeping me from experiencing intimacy. Now, if you were a regular straight person during the pandemic and you complained that pandemic restrictions were dictating your sex life, were shaping your professional life, were messing with your head, and were keeping you from experiencing intimacy, how many publications do you think would have been eager to publish your story about how you were being oppressed? I, of course, am not alone. Right? Viruses have upended people's lives, but their effects have not been felt equally. In three cases, LGBTQ plus people were disproportionately affected. No, I think homosexual men were disproportionately affected. Lesbians are not out there getting AIDS. Lesbians were never contracting AIDS in high numbers. Lesbians are not contracting monkeypox in high numbers. If you simply abstain from having unprotected anal sex with other men, you're not likely to get AIDS or monkeypox or a whole host of other horrible diseases.
But uh, according to this author, LGBTQ people are disproportionately affected by STDs. Now, no, it's not because they have more reckless behavior, right? Get that negative trope out of your mind. It's because of social stigma. It's because of homophobia. Homophobia, guys, is giving people monkeypox and AIDS, right? And LGBT people are more likely to be poor than straight people. Is that really true? And more likely to be subject to the confluence, the confluence of conditions, incarceration, unemployment, lack of insurance that produces a viral underclass. Second, queer people do not get a good sexual health education nor access to queer specific health resources. That's our problem. This is why we've got so much monkeypox now because queer people do not get a good sexual health education nor access to queer specific health resources. And third, gay men have on average more sexual partners than straight people, so they are more open to intimacy. Even when coupled, gay men are more likely to be openly non-monogamous. Wow, you can knock me over with a feather. This is nothing to be ashamed of. Being trans or gay is good, and queer sex is good. But many people, even many queer people, have internalized the idea that contracting sexually transmitted diseases is bad, shameful, and should be hidden. Shame should not be a factor in these discussions. Viruses are not conscious, guys. They simply follow the mechanistic drive to replicate. But those who choose to punish us for contracting violences, right, they are certainly conscious. Now, after the Stonewall riots of 1969, there was this brief period of time when queer men could have a lot of sex with relatively little worry. Then in the early 1980s, reports trickled in that young gay men were becoming marked by purple lesions and falling ill to an extremely rare form of cancer, AIDS. Now, monkeypox is threatening all the progress that was made toward freeing gay men to have sex without fear. If only we lived in a world where gay men could feel more freedom to have sex with other gay men without fear. Why do we have to sheep heap all the shame on gay men? Right? When you get monkeypox, the answer is not to hide. The answer is not to abstain from participating in gay orgies. The answer is not to be embarrassed about the kind of sex that we have. Right? This is the time to destroy the conditions that create the underclass in the first place. Now, there are other Stephen W. Thrasher PhD classics on The Guardian. There is an essay he wrote, the movie Boyhood is racist, racist, racist. He says, being a queer person myself, when Mason wears nail polish to openly challenge the concepts of masculinity around him, I was totally cheering for him, but I was annoyed in retrospect to find myself so emotionally invested in the success of an average white boy as he headed off towards his manhood by the end of the film. So Steve Saylor says, the gay critic is peeved that the movie got his hopes up about the dreamy adolescent boy, only to bring them down with a crash when the kid gets a girlfriend. So sad. All right. What the heck is going on with Taiwan? Well, Neil, I think they're doing it because of China's, China's actions, the Chinese Communist Party's actions, and how aggressive the PLA has become, you know, not only vis-a-vis you know, Taiwan, but broadly across the Indo-Pacific region. And, and I think it's an effort, you know, I think the sequencing is wrong, but an effort to, to deter conflict by showing support for Taiwan. But I think the sequence of action should be bolster Taiwan's defense, rush the defense capabilities that Taiwan has already purchased. And, and you've seen, I think, maybe the introduction of this, uh, of this bill in the last uh, two days uh, with Senator uh, Menendez and, and Senator Graham to provide kind of some seed money for even, uh, for even some further strengthening of, of Taiwan's defense capabilities. But that should go... That 
should go first, right? That should be the priority of just, just do what you can to strengthen deterrence by denial and let your actions speak for themselves. Let the Taiwanese actions speak for themselves. Some of the actions that the Taiwanese military and government have to take in terms of, you know, increasing maybe terms of enlistment, for example, and, and so forth. So, so I think that what, what the, the impetus has been Chinese aggression in the areas I mentioned, but, but obviously, you know, the subjugation of, of, of Hong Kong and the end of the one country, two systems, uh, and, and, and just the party's behavior broadly, I think, has, has brought this on. Let's get John in here. Yeah, I just want to jump in with a, a couple of points. As the economist, I think China will do what's in its self-interest. <laughs> it could choose to ignore this trip. It could choose to do whatever. And, and it's, it's pretty clear that they're choosing to make kind of a fuss and show off their military prowess about uh, Taiwan uh, to ruffle, to, to muddy the waters. And uh, I, th- I think, yeah, it, it will end up with blockade or something of the sort as opposed to immediate invasion. And they want to sort of make clear what that will look like to us. Uh, I think the immediate consequence sort of, I want to bounce off some things I've been reading about this with you guys. The immediate consequence is not the China, Taiwan Straits. The immediate consequence is Ukraine. Uh, we are begging the Chinese to help us and not not trade with the Russians, not supply them with drones. And so far, the Chinese have been going along with us. If you want to piss off the Chinese right now, uh, we are in another war. We're in a shooting war. And uh, I think uh, driving the Chinese further into the Russia camp uh, is probably one of the uh, consequences of, of causing a kerfuffle with them right now. Why are we doing this? Um, I read a very interesting uh, quote from actually one of Nancy Pelosi's staffers. She's going to retire soon. She wants to go out on a big bang with, with a big foreign policy feather in her cap. Uh, it's clear there was some debate within the administration as there is debate within families about whether she should go. That's why we're doing this. This isn't a considered chess move by the U.S. foreign policy elite queen to, you know, Q4. No, uh, this is Nancy Pelosi burnishing her, her reputation and causing some damage on the way out. Um, as we look forward, uh, I, I am struck by the amount of talk loudly and carry a small stick. Um, we were not willing to, um, to declare a no-fly zone over Ukraine. If China invades Taiwan, we're... T- okay, here's another heartbreaking story in the New York Times. You're not going to believe this. I, I couldn't believe it. So this guy, you need to know this, all right, Mr... Iglesias here. He has a PhD in journalism, right? Gabino Iglesias. He's a writer of noir and he's exploring the Texas underworld. He arrived in Austin with $236 to his name after being told his name had too many vowels for him to find success. He's on the cusp of noir stardom. Now, here's what's just going to totally rock your world, right? This fine gentleman, right? He has a PhD in journalism. Right, a PhD in journalism. So you would think that the opportunities just come flooding his way. He's got a PhD in journalism. I mean, there's just an enormous market out there for people with PhDs in journalism. But the problem is America is so racist. He says, when you're a stocky brown guy with an accent, there's not a lot of people clamoring to give you opportunities, Mr. Iglesias said. I had no idea. Because I don't know about you, I'm 56 years of age, and as a white man, I've gone through life, and people everywhere I go are just clamoring to give me opportunities, monetary opportunities, romantic opportunities, intimacy opportunities, monkeypox opportunities. Like, opportunities just rain down on me everywhere I go because, number one, I'm not stocky, I'm slender. And I've got an accent too, but mine is pleasing. But most important, I guess, is because of my white privilege. So I, I'm just curious. If you're white, press one if you've gone through your life with people just clamoring to give you opportunities. Seriously, folks, seriously. I mean, here's this guy complaining that because he's a stocky brown guy with an accent, there's not a lot of people clamoring to give him opportunities. Like, who the heck goes through life with people just clamoring to give you opportunities, right? I, almost nobody goes through life 
with people clamoring to give them opportunities unless you're a beautiful young woman, and that's only as long as you're young and you're beautiful, all right? Almost nobody goes through life with those around them just showering them with opportunities, but he wants to blame it on a racist America that he's a stocky brown guy. And here's another piece of, of gratitude from him. Puerto Ricans may be second-class citizens, but that American passport is extremely helpful, he said. Okay, so poor Puerto Ricans, they're, they're second-class citizens. What about the tens of billions of dollars that America has wasted propping up Puerto Rico? All right? America spends tens of billions of dollars propping up Puerto Rico, and what do we get? We get resentment that, oh, somehow they're second-class citizens, and they're, they're not experiencing people clamoring to give them opportunities. I mean, come on, man. Like, like really, you think that, that uh, non-stocky, non-brown people go through life and, and experience a world where people are just clamoring to give them opportunities? Come on. That's nonsense. Weird at all. It'll probably get decided the way it should be somewhere along the way up, and that'll be it. Um, and as far as repealing the NFA, I, obviously I would love for that to happen, but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't count my chickens that that's that's going down anytime soon. But maybe not. And secondly, I, everyone keeps asking me about this about the Alex Jones lawsuit. I'm not following it at all. Like I, I really don't care. Like I, I admit that it's it's a big First Amendment issue or whatever. I, I can't listen to people argue in in an open court of law whether the people, the victims of Sandy Hook were crisis actors or not. And and Alex Jones trying to convince people that, like, A, he was kidding, or, or like, do I think he should be sued over it? Probably not. I think he has a right to basically say whatever he wants. And just because he said something that hurt people's feelings, I don't think he should be able to be sued over it. That being said, we live in the real world where juries are made up of people. And Alex Jones is a very difficult person to find sympathy for. It, it re Unless you're a fan of his to begin with, he's very, very difficult to, to, to sympathize with especially in a place like open court. Now, the only thing I saw today, I guess his lawyers accidentally turned over all of his email and phone <laughs> records. Holy shit. Like, I would imagine that, A, that's going to get the guy disbarred. I mean, that, that's a pretty serious thing to turn. A, if you have them and your client doesn't know that you have them, that's a really big deal. Like, you're not allowed to have evidence that your client doesn't know you have or that you're... Like, attorney-client privilege is not something the attorney gets to waive. It's something the client gets to waive. So if he did turn them over, he definitely didn't have permission let alone if Alex Jones even knew about it. Yeah, so I was kind of ambivalent I, I had, when Alex Jones was banned from all of big tech. I, I think people ha have a right to decide who goes into their home or who who do they host on their platform. Right, here's David Carter. Not doing more stuff. If, if it chases away the dumbest among you, good. Maybe it'll chase away some of the sure. deniers. Chase hey, away the Holocaust. Hey. Tell you, tell a little secret, okay? Uh, I, I got this for free. Okay, and not because of product placement. You know, that no one's going to send me something free just because I put it on camera. This is a Coke with coffee. I don't drink this stuff. I've never bought it. But let me tell you, here's the secret. I use this grocery delivery service out here. I'm not going to say who they is because I don't want to ruin this nice little scam I got going. It's not really a scam because I'm still playing by the rules. I think if you're playing by the rules, it's not a scam. Uh, you order your groceries uh, from this particular store. And you're given the choice with each item you order. Uh, you can either say substitute or don't substitute if the thing is out of stock because you know, you're know you choosing online, but when the order gets to the store, they might be out of stock on a few things. So uh, if you get a substitution and you don't want one, you get it for free. You just have to go back online and click refund. Okay, well, I realized that whatever, whenever you click no substitutions, 
that message never gets to the store. In other words, the store will substitute every time they're out of stock, whether you want a substitution or not. And that means everything you get that's a substitute, you can get for free. See, you don't have to pay for it. Now, I order a lot of Starbucks iced coffees. I always have one of those uh, every morning when I wake up. So I order like large cases of Starbucks iced coffees. And uh, of course I always put do not substitute, but that never matters to the store. So I ordered like a dozen Starbucks iced coffees last week and they substituted these a dozen Coca-Cola with coffee. And I didn't ask for these and I don't drink these. I've never bought one, but there they were, they were substituted. And so I just went online and I said, I didn't ask for these click free. A dozen of them for free. I, every order, I get something for free because there's always a substitution that I didn't ask for. Oh, it's great. As I said, I don't I'm concerned that this is perpetuating negative tropes about our people. Talking about U.S. military confrontation with China. Why in the world would anyone think, or would we even, uh, have the U.S. Uh, military fighting against the Chinese over Taiwan when we're not willing to uh, you know, do, do tiny direct actions in Ukraine? We'll sell them weapons, which we can get there through Poland. You can't get weapons. You can't get HIMARS systems into, into Taiwan over 6,000 miles of ocean after China's invaded. Well, and, and this is what I want to have as a follow-up to this trip, right? So this, this trip, it seemed like it was disconnected, as you mentioned, John, from any kind of broader strategy. It, it, there's time maybe now to integrate it into the strategy to deter conflict you know, across. Okay, this is uh, Homer Simpson getting red we, I want to write, I want to do, I'm gonna. I'm actually going to script it and then just do all the voices for the podcast at some point. No. But my spec script for the Simpsons were Homer <laughs> gets red-pilled and then Marge has to tolerate him like finding out about like the alt-right and stuff. <laughs> He's like, Marge, did you know that the Jews are using cultural Marxism to turn Bart gay? (laughs) (laughs) Stop reading those websites. Marge, I've got great news. I'm teaching Milhouse how to fuck Lisa. Homer, stop that. No, it'll be good for Milhouse and Lisa's too uppity. (laughs) I'm worried she's going to accuse somebody of rape. She goes to her smart girl college. So that's the idea for the, mm-hmm. you know. I pitch him back. I can't do any impressions. Yeah. There's no uh, resolution to the episode. I it's, don't think. it's like a rumble for the whole thing. So <laughs> <laughs> have you heard about this new website? <laughs> <laughs> it's called Stormfront. I can't do Burns, really. Oh, Smithers, man. Yeah. So uh, ahead of his time. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Burns. Uh, I'm gay. You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> Good news, they finally fired that queer. <laughs> right, Marge. Remember that queer I've been complaining about for 30 seasons? They finally fired him. Oh, stop calling him that. <laughs> what? I just learned the word. I, they use it. They like being called that. <laughs> oh, my, you're still using it in a derogatory way. They put the Q in the LG thing. I don't... It's not my fault. Ayatollah Khomeini. Ayatollah Khomeini. Just call me. Yeah, just have Homer become the next Ayatollah. Marge, do you know about these Muslims? They're trying to sneak into the country. <laughs> Homer, stop reading Gavin McInnes. <laughs> <laughs> but Marge, he's so cool. I'm going to become a proud boy. <laughs> Homer, what is that? Homer, why are you spending so much money on the Anthony Kumia network? <laughs> <laughs> Marge, I like these shows. Marge, I've, there's this guy, Louis J. Gomez, that I've been idolizing online. <laughs> I'm going to start taking adult karate lessons so I can be more like Lewis. <laughs> okay, uh, Richard Spencer apparently did an Anything Goes. So, wow, he went uh, over four hours. Oh, come on, man. Come on, man. Let's, uh, let's, let's fire. Demographic. Williams of people. Let, let's fire this up here. Through centralized structures. <laughs> 
Oh shit! Okay. This is the nearest thing of, I've never heard. <laughs> this is why I have these faces. It's so fun. Conservatism. Uh, uh, Biden, Biden's Irish, isn't he, Richard? I know. Yeah, and look, is he really? Yeah. And, okay, and I think it's just this. like Indian. We all have Indian in us, and we all have a little bit of Irish. I am for sure black and German. And I think I have a little mm-hmm. bit of Irish, mm-hmm. but I, I know I have Indian, black, and German. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think everybody yeah. has a pinch of Irish. Oh, how's my Irish accent tonight? <laughs> that, that's yeah. Well, I mean, keep this in mind. So we had, you know, a Protestant pre- uh, president with George W. Bush. We yeah. had a Protestant um, with Barack Obama, with maybe some, you know, at least in his heritage, some uh, Islamic, you know, leanings or something. Um, not being a birther here, but uh, and then we we finally had a Catholic president who banned abortion. So I mean, is that a coincidence, or is that actually just the Irish doing their work? Mm. Well, you know who the first uh, Catholic president was. I'm pretty sure it's the first Catholic president, John Kennedy. Kennedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, have you written much about his father? We tried to rid ourselves of the Catholic menace, but um, <laughs> unsuccessfully. They they were playing. They came back. <laughs> they came back. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. You got, you got all those uh, lucky charms. Uh, you're pushing my hot buttons. You're pushing my hot buttons right now. <laughs> the hot buttons. Is that so? <laughs> Abortion. Wow. How do y'all feel about that? Men, go ahead and chime in on our fucking uteruses. Uh, yeah, I'm pro-choice. Uh, I'm, Thank I'm, you. I'm, it should be your choice, right? I'm, I'm too maybe. old to even give a fuck. I can't get pregnant if I tried, but I'm just saying. It should be a choice. Right, like you should have as many abortions as you want. <laughs> First of all, no, it's irresponsible to get yourself in that position. I'm not going to lie, okay? But if you so happen, it should be your choice. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. I, I'm pro-abortion, but uh, I'm not so sure yeah. if it should be your choice. What? Say that again? I said, I'm, I'm pro-abortion, but I'm not so sure it should be your choice. What the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> I'm confused. Eugenics. Okay, guys. Yeah, let's not get... Guys, let's... Yeah, but it's not oh, personal. Guys. Yeah, yeah. Sure. We, so it's uh, okay to have an abortion, but it shouldn't be my choice? Well, not your choice in particular, but... Yeah, I don't know. Might not be... I... Whoa, 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 whoa. We, we, uh, shut it down. Shut that down. Well, let's get back to HR McMaster. The Indo-Pacific region, but with Taiwan in particular, but more broadly to compete more effectively with the Chinese Communist Party and, and its various forms of aggression, including economic aggression and informational aggression and cyber aggression and, and all, all the actions that we've seen the, the party taking uh, over, over recent years. And so I think what, what should happen is there should hopefully be a bipartisan effort to describe really what is at stake in the competition with the Chinese Communist Party broadly? What is at stake in, in Taiwan? Why does Taiwan matter? And what are we going to do alongside allies and partners to, to ensure uh, the preservation of peace you know, through Turns by denial piece of view Taiwan. That's the discussion that should happen. Everything's out of sequence, right? The Trump administration doesn't get really high marks a lot of times for you know for coordination uh, of efforts. But whenever there was a big CODEL, a congressional delegation going abroad, I, I would meet with them in, in the situation room uh, and and uh, and explain to them what our strategy was, what our policy was relevant to that trip, and ask them to help advance that strategy. And, and that's what you didn't see. You saw the the executive branch almost even denying that the trip was going to happen. I mean, uh, and, and it would have been even even better. Is, you know, would be to have made that trip a bipartisan trip. You know, bring some some Republican uh, members of Congress with you as well. So anyway, some some missed opportunities. But I don't want to be in the camp of of of, uh, of saying that, that the speaker should not have gone. I think once the you know once the word got out, you know, oh, that yeah. she was going. I think it would have been a, a, a bigger, much bigger mistake to, to not have, to, to have not gone. Since we're in the situation Zoom rather than the situation room, I'm going to do something very risky that I probably wouldn't do in the situation room. And it may be unprecedented for me on on Goodfellas. I'm going to take the Chinese side of this. And the reason I'm going to do that is that I think. Uh, the U.S. has shifted its policy in a subtle way uh, from what was an ambiguous policy over 50 years. And the ambiguous policy was to say, we actually accept the one China principle. We accept your claim that Taiwan's part of China, but we also reserve the right to prevent you changing the de facto state of affairs by force. And that's the implication of the 1979 Act, which Nancy Pelosi cited in her Washington Post op-ed. Now, I think ever since Richard Haas said that we should get rid of strategic ambiguity, there's been a tendency amongst members of both parties to take less and less uh, ambiguous positions on Taiwan, to make it sound as if there's an unconditional commitment to the defense uh, of Taiwan. The president himself did this three times, only to have his own staff walk it back. 
Now, once is a gaffe, but three times looks like a change of policy. And if I view this from the Chinese vantage point, it's not just that the Chinese have been doing more flyovers. It's also that the US seems to have shifted its position to one of unambiguous commitment to the defense of Taiwan. And therefore, it's impossible for the Chinese not to go through uh, quite a theatrical display uh, of military force in the coming days, because they can't simply acquiesce in what amounts to de facto recognition of, of Taiwan as an independent state. And I use de facto deliberately. In effect, Nancy Pelosi flew into Taiwan, met with the president of Taiwan and other members of the Taiwanese government exactly as if it were an independent state, in defiance of uh, statements from Beijing. I think we have to recognize that this is a different approach, even from the one taken uh, by the Clinton administration, which came into office in a pretty combative state of mind about China. Remember the butchers of Beijing. Uh, but when the crisis of 95, 96 happened, Actually, the Clinton administration didn't really want to get into that fight and got extremely nervous in 96 when the Chinese started talking about nuclear options. This seems different. It feels to me as if the administration has gone looking for a fight over Taiwan. Secretary of State Blinken talked about Taiwan in his, his speech back in June. Uh, Secretary of Defense Austin brought up the subject when he was in Singapore in July. I mean, this is, if I view this from a Chinese perspective, part of a pattern of less and less ambiguity and more and more de facto recognition of Taiwan as an independent entity. Now, HR is going to shoot me down in flames. I'm ready for it. It's the situation Zoom, not the room. Okay, so, so Neil, first of all, what word makes a difference? You said the one China principle. That's, that's China's phrase, right? It's, it's the one China policy from our perspective. The one China, China wants us to say the one China principle, which means, hey, they're going to subsume Taiwan inevitably uh, and, and, and can do so whenever they want by force if necessary. The, you know, the one China policy is associated with the, the shift in policy to the recognition of, of, the, of the PRC, uh, but, but also with the stipulation that we have these six assurances associated with the Taiwan Relations Act. And so, so it's really that one word make, makes, makes a big difference. There, there is no way that the United States Speaker of the House visiting Taiwan is nearly as provocative of, of China's many provocations vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan over, over, over just recent years, even how about even recent months, right? With, you know, with over 900 and some uh, in, uh, violations of the air defense uh, uh, identification zone over the past year year or so, you know, the, uh, the, the economic coercion, the, the, you know, the cyber attack that probably just happened a couple of days ago in response to the visit. I mean, multiple cyber attacks, the economic coercion, the political subversion, the information operations, the, the you know, effort to, to manipulate the, the elections which backfired. So I, I just think that we should not put ourselves in the role of the aggressor here. I think that's quite self-referential, especially if you look at how other countries in the region have been suffering from Chinese aggression as well. I mean, ramming and sinking a Vietnamese vessel, for example, you know, militarizing islands in the South China Sea and laying claim to the whole ocean, right? the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the economic coercion against Australia, uh, how Japan has, has come under, under Chinese uh, uh, military aggression and is building up a self-defense force in response. So I think we have to see this in context of, 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 Chinese, of Chinese aggression. You mentioned the Clinton administration. <laughs> hey, Bill Clinton was operating under a delusion, right, that China, if they were welcomed into the international order, the inter international economic Okay, let's uh, get a little Anthony Camille here. Uh, there, it, it, there's, there's an algorithm thing with uh, Instagram where, depending on what you search for, yeah. it'll just give you a bunch of that. So you could search and look for uh, women you know, bikinis, big tits, whatever it is. And then as you scroll through, that's all you'll see. So okay, there is uh, an upside. Uh, it, it, there's there's an algorithm thing with uh, Instagram where, it, depending on what you search for, yeah. it'll just give you a bunch of that. So you could search and look for uh, women you know, bikinis, big tits, whatever it is. And then as you scroll through, that's all you'll see. So there is uh, an upside. So yeah, I'll try to build up my Instagram. And they can, you know, they make money. They, you know, there are some of these girls out there. Yeah. They got a lot of followers. They, they're on uh, all kinds of different yeah. social media. They're on uh, OnlyFans is huge. You got to make that commitment, though. I think when, when a girl goes from Instagram or something like that to OnlyFans, yeah. it's like jumping from weed to heroin. You know, you, you got to make that jump. You got to make that commitment that you are going to be showing some shit. Yeah. It's prostitution, really. Yeah, it is. It's, you're a sex worker. Yeah, you're a sex worker now. I say if you're like a female comic and you make more money as a sex worker yeah. than a comic, then you're a sex worker. A sex worker. Does comedy know. as a hobby. That's when they uh, when they wanted to take all the porn or nudity off of OnlyFans. Oh, no nudity? Yeah, no nudity. It was just oh, going to be. Why even do it? Yeah, ridiculous. It was just like, going to read poetry on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every female comic was like, how am I supposed to buy food? You mean I'll have to I'll do gigs now? A gig? I got to write jokes. I'll have to come up with some material. <laughs> I can't I'd rather just show my ass vagina. I can't write jokes. Karen Fee. Karen's got an OnlyFans, right? 
Yeah, they were talking about on Rogan, like uh, Ari Shafir, the great Jew, was talking, yes. was saying, like, they were commending her. And then even Rogan played along with it. He's like, yeah, that's yeah, because then you don't have to worry about gigs. You just show your asshole. Well, then that's not a comic, is it? Yeah, but but that's what they're saying. Like, no, she's a real comic, and uh, you know, and uh, but she doesn't, but she doesn't do any. Were they goofing on her? No, they they're were, all friends with her. They're all ironic. No, they're all friends with her. It was Mark Norman and and Ari and maybe another dude, and uh. and, and then Rogan. <laughs> Rogan. No, they're all saying like, you know, no, she's got it all figured out. Yeah, yeah. Until her kids see. Mom, is that your asshole? I recognize yeah. that asshole anywhere, Mom. Don't people realize that, that the internet is truly forever? And Like, they know what they were doing, but like, I can't imagine what they're thinking when they think look back. They're trading money for everything that you're supposed to want. Do you think life. they have regret when they look back? Yeah, absolutely. I don't like, care I what they gotta, I don't Like, because it's what guy, too. They're, they're, you're damaged goods! They're damaged goods. Yeah, but uh, you mean guy, a guy porn a, star? Yeah. No, no, a guy is going to look at one of these girls oh, right, and, right, you know, right. oh, I'm going to take her home to my family and marry her. And me. it's like, oh, here she is fucking draining three cocks in the front end and getting shit shoved right. up her ass. And, and, you know, some guys go, you know, no, I don't have a problem with this. Like, no, you do. Shut up. It's like, yeah, they, uh, I think, I think they, they know like what they're doing isn't good. I think they have money to eat and a, a roof over their but, head. But. but the thing is, I think when they, I think a lot of them start doing it because a lot of them, like if you're really hot and everybody wants to fuck you, you, yeah. might, as well, you might, maybe you're thinking like, I should just get paid for this. Like yeah. everybody just wants to fuck me anyway. Right. So why not just get the money? Yeah, yeah. Then I think when you look back, you're like, shouldn't I? Have- guys mindset and guys aren't the ones that are able to do this shit. It's only a girl. And I think once they get something like OnlyFans and they, you know, hey, I just started my OnlyFans and, you know, they start getting some money coming in and somebody goes, hey, why don't you just show, you know, let me see a tit. Yeah. You see that. And it's like, nah, I, look, I'm here. Yeah. I'm talking. And then they offer a big amount of money. They're like, all right, just that. And then ding, 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 more money pours yeah, in. Yeah. And then it's, oh, can I just see a little of your ass? And before you know it, they're just big destroyer dildo in there. <laughs> oh, I've seen I've, every guy, because uh, not only that, you could just share it. Like if you, if, yeah. if, because I know female comics and, and, Somebody will have a picture because he pays for her. Yeah, and either he pays that, for it. Yep. Like he, t- like you got to tip them to get more whatever pictures. Right. So then, but then he has it. Then he sends it to me. He goes, yeah. look at Karen Feehan's asshole. You could see it if you just go on like Google search Karen Feehan OnlyFans. Really? And the pictures will pop up. Why don't you try that? Let's see what's up there. Let's do the opposite of what Rogan did. She's a whore. <laughs> what a whore. <laughs> oh, so they weren't even being ironic. They were actually they were one hundred percent supporting her because she works. She works at the stand, and they all work at the stand. Yeah. She yeah. she emcees the the. Hey. You can get whatever you, you want. The MC's the Monday show. Uh, whatever they call it. Uh, Monday Madness. Let's see. We got to <laughs> walk right up to it. Wait, is that her do, using a vibrator? Holy shit. Is that her vagina right there? Anthony, that's a clit sucker. Oh. <laughs> so this is Google oh. search? Google yeah, you search. just search Google and you put, oh, look, she's very pleasured right there. Ooh. And then, uh, <laughs> thoughtful. yeah, thoughtful. There's a little cheeky. <laughs> Teehee. That's good right there. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, they're all, they all end up on porn sites. All these fucking things end up on porn sites. So oh, look, can you go to uh, videos? See what's on videos. Maybe we'll get some uh, video. This is terrible. I'm actually uh, stealing from her. Uh-oh. Okay. You got volume? Oh, Jesus. Oh, fuck, dude. Dude, she's fucking like, dude, she's fucking herself. What is this? Is there volume? That's it. Or she doesn't talk. It's slightly well, odd. Yeah. Well shaped. Oh, she doesn't talk. That's the thing, though. Look, that's like that thing that uh, they use to harden the cement in your teeth when they put a cap in. They didn't show this on Rogan. Yeah, yeah. Why wasn't this? No, I commend uh, everything. Uh, I'm going to get in so much trouble for this. <laughs> Why she always? I always get in trouble with other comics when you're on the show. I don't know what it is. But it's it's just you. a coincidence. Wait, uh, readily available. Wait, can you? Can is this like a copyright thing? Look at the asshole. It says the user number on the bottom of the video. So oh, yeah, busted. we're just exposing who put this yeah. on. This is wrong. They're on your side. That user ID needs to be fucking brought to justice. We're helping. <laughs> oh, my God. I sure hope uh, your son's not out there. Watching this. He doesn't care. Oh, my God. He goes, oh, it's Karen. I recognize her anywhere. <laughs> it's Aunt Karen. <laughs> it's Karen. Oh, my God. Wow. That's a pretty decent uh, little snatch he got going for himself there. I got to oh, say. Disavow. Again, one nine zero four eight zero nine. Not that man. Report him. He's the guilty party here that uh, took oh. this. Oh, Jesus. Things in high gear now. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get that at Costco. 
top of the line. Wow. I'm not really seeing any like. Whoa, it's moving. I'm not really hearing any like. It sounds like a motorboat. Is there any. Okay, I think that's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye bye.